I was afraid I'd never be able to say the right words to you in person. So I'm trying to do it like this. Travis, don't you recognize me? It's your brother, Walt. Well, you've been gone a long time, Travis. Is four years a long time? Do you remember your little boy? Well, he's with us. We didn't know what else to do. Do you think he still loves her? How would I know about that, too? I think he does. About that land when we were all together with your mom. Where? Paris. Looks just like Texas to me. It is. I gotta go away now. Why? Because I'm gonna find her. What's out there? I don't mind listening. I do it all the time. A lot can happen to a man in four years, I guess. All kinds of trouble. God damn it! You tell me what happened, Travis. How how we have two fathers? Just lucky, I guess. And he dreamed about this place without knowing its name. Lost in a deep, vast country where nobody knew him. And for the first time, he wished he were far away. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 283, Paris, Texas. Gotta love any time you get Harry Dean Stanton and Dean Stockwell, that suave motherfucker Ben from Blue Velvet. (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely a one for us type episode (laughs) i don't know that it's gonna do huge download numbers we know that going in it's okay sometimes you just watch a movie and within the first 30 seconds of establishing shots you're like yes this is for me yeah and 100 percent, this is one of these movies sometimes there are misses where you think that from the opening and it's not but most of the time it's right on and and this is one of those 
I would go even further and say this is a movie that the first time I saw it, you just kind of know that it's one of your top ten movies. Yeah. <laughs> it just hits home. Uh-huh. And there's certain movies that become your favorite movies that you don't need to rewatch all the time. Definitely. This podcast is not the same as the rewatchables. These aren't always the most rewatchable movies. Paris, Texas isn't one you're thinking about throwing on every few months. Yeah. Or anything like that. It's an emotional journey. It's two hours and 25 minutes. It's slow paced. Not a ton of things happen in it. Just wait until we do Manchester by the Sea. That's a rewatchable. (laughs) So yeah, if you're new to the film, I would recommend checking it out first. But if you're going to listen anyway, we'll do our best to convince you that it's... It's something exciting and worth <laughs> worth your time. And if you are a fan of the film, then... Welcome. Stop listening, because we'll probably embarrass ourselves <laughs> with our lack of knowledge. Right. I have only seen it a couple times. It was new to me when I got the Criterion. I think you told me you watched it, and you were like, it's great. I watched it, and of course, it was right up my alley right away. So, I, yeah, it's still fairly fresh to me, though. It's, it hasn't been like a ton of rewatches. Before we discuss Paris, Texas, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. If you'd like a free sticker, let us know on Twitter and you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby. Paris, Texas was released in 1984. It is a smaller film not really a big wide release not a huge money maker not really a mainstream thing it's more of an art house type film it was directed by the german filmmaker vim vendors and it was written by oh yeah sam shepherd and adapted by lm kit carson yeah i i didn't realize I mean, maybe you and i've talked about this before that that sam shepherd wrote movies I knew well, him, his main thing it was being a playwright. Yeah, okay. But he was also an actor. Yeah. When I saw his name in this, I was like, is that the same guy? And then, of course, it is. And he had quite a career as a writer, really. Yeah, the writing credits are a little strange. It's kind of hard to even really nail down exactly how the process went because it's somewhat loosely based on some prior work of Shepard's, but... I think it was an original idea, but then L.M. Kit Carson is credited as adapted by. Oh, yeah. But then I think Carson and Vendors really came up with a lot of the situational stuff for the ending. So I don't know. I don't really know how to explain it. Right. L.M. Kit Carson has some interesting writing credits as well. He is credited on the Breathless remake. With okay. Richard Gere, which I, yeah. I do enjoy a lot. Same here. He also wrote Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Oh, there we go. Dennis <laughs> Hopper. His son, Hunter, with the actress Karen Black, plays Hunter in the film. I see. Vim Vendors, part of the new German cinema, brings a unique perspective on Americana, and the result is desolate and haunting. And oh, yeah. 
completely its own unique thing. Vin Vendor is definitely a director that I've really only gotten into his work over the past couple of years, but I'm definitely in. He wanted to, quote, tell a story about America, and this is the result. Paris, Texas is a road movie and also a variation on the neo-Western. It's loosely based on Shepard's Motel Chronicles. In fact, it was almost called that. Oh. And began as a story of two brothers, with one of the brothers having lost his memory. As the script grew and grew, the brother-brother relationship faded and the other ideas started to emerge. The budget of the film was $1.8 million and the box office was $2.2 million. I do believe that the release was sort of strange in some of the countries sure. where vendors usually did more because he had some of other material out that was competing and some of the distributors didn't want to release it. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah, I guess that development kind of bleeds over into the actual movie because it does feel like the brother relationship is sort of a important part of it that fades from the narrative as it rolls along. At the 1984 Cannes Film Festival, Paris, Texas won the Palme d'Or from the official jury. The film is now beloved by critics and filmmakers, proving to be an influence on David Robert Mitchell, who directed oh, yeah. It Follows right. and Under the Silver Lake, and Wes Anderson, among others. When it comes to this film, though, it's really all about the style and the oh, aesthetic. Dude, the color palette of it. When you see those Instagram accounts that are like the color palettes of movies and stuff, <laughs> yeah. that's what I think of when I'm watching this movie. Yeah, and there's a lot of opinions and theories about what all the different colors mean and symbolize. Green is a big one at the end of the film oh, yeah. where Jane is wearing green and then Travis is in that green light in the all parking right. lot. Yeah. There's all these different things, and I guess you can kind of notice them and assign your own meanings and, and take away what you think they all mean, but I think... For the purposes of an audio podcast, uh -huh. it's a little hard to just describe every scene and what right. colors are being used. You just but, have to experience it, I think. Yeah, and even though I do think that the use of color is insanely important, obviously, in filmmaking, in my personal opinion, I always think that much like your interpretation of Mulholland Drive or uh -huh. something, it's your own thing to try to figure out and piece together. And yeah, you can watch various YouTube videos explaining color in Paris, Texas or whatever, but I don't really feel like that's what you should do. I think you yeah, should yeah. watch the film and experience the colors yourself because there's something in this film that they create that is just by far one of the most gorgeous films ever made. Uh huh. Hands down. In addition to that, all the locations that they're shooting in and everything seem so authentic and vivid at the same time. I know it's 84, but it still seems like leftover from the 70s. Yeah, they definitely find places where they're able to juxtapose a lot of different things up against each other. The desolate desert areas with the neon signs oh, yeah. and the roadside motels, and then you have the cavernous concrete jungle of houston That's at right. the end yeah which almost seems like futuristic when you see it because of what you've spent most of the movie in yeah just endless endless praise for the trifecta 
vendors, directing, cinematographer, Robert Mueller, production designer, Kate Altman, a brilliant blend of Texas landscape and climate, a world full of billboards, placards, graffiti, rusty iron carcasses, old railway lines, neon signs, and motels, as critic Emmanuel Levy points out. Paris, Texas looks and feels real, but it's somehow more than that. It's somehow more beautiful than real, but also real. Right. I know. Because you could say, well, Blade Runner is more beautiful than real, but it's futuristic and it's not actually real. Whereas everything in Paris, Texas, of course, is real, but the way that it's shot, it seems better than real. Uh, Yeah, true. Like every single thing they come up with, every shot, even ones that seem mundane at first, it seems like so much thought and effort was put into it. Well, dude, I have it written down as one of the things that I wanted to talk about when we got to it, but that reminds me of it. When they first get back to LA to like Dean Stockwell's house, I'm like, wow, pretty good view from their driveway. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because it's just everything looks cool. Well, yeah, then the way they decide to light those scenes with the little lights in the driveway, like yeah. in the yard or whatever, and then the different lights through the blinds, and then all kinds of different things. Or so, even at the end of the film, when Travis is recording that taped message for Hunter, and he's sitting in the bathroom of the motel, just the way that that bathroom window goes from the floor up. Yeah, and he's sitting on the edge of the tub, and right, then you right. see the city behind. It's I like, know. how lucky are they to find these places? Because everything looks so perfect. I know that you would think you'd have to spend years scouting locations to find everything they used in this movie. It's crazy. The film is named for the Texas city of Paris, but not set there in any scene. Instead, Paris is referred to as the location of a vacant lot owned by the lead character Travis, played by Harry Dean Stanton, that is seen in a photograph and used as a metaphor, but the name Paris is also deliberately deceptive, conjuring up images of Paris, France, when the reality is much different, and this, of course, is specifically referred to in the film in regards to the birthplace of Travis's mother. That's like something that you even get just from the title of the movie. That evokes a certain emotion that you're like, okay, it's a little bit of a fake out here. (laughs) (laughs) Shooting started in 1983 while the screenplay was still incomplete with the objective of filming in the order of the story. Writer Sam Shepard planned to base the rest of the story on their understanding of the characters and observations of the actors. However, when Shepard moved on to another job, he sent director Vin Vendor's notes on how the screenplay should end instead. He credited Vendors and co-writer L.M. Kit Carson with the idea of a peep show and the story's final acts. According to Dean Stockwell, his character in the early drafts was intended to travel with Hunter, Travis, and Anne before Anne turned back to Los Angeles and Walt became lost in the desert, paralleling Travis in the first scene. Oh, wow. The plot focuses on a vagabond named Travis who, after mysteriously wandering out of the desert in a dissociative fugue, attempts to reunite with his brother, played by Dean Stockwell, and seven-year-old son, played by Hunter Carson. After reconnecting with his son, Travis and the boy end up embarking on a voyage through the American Southwest to track down Travis's long-missing wife, Jane. From this simple setup, 
vendors and Shepard produce a powerful statement on codes of masculinity and the myth of the American family, as well as an exquisite visual exploration of a vast crumbling world of canyons and neon. And that little part is taken straight from the back of the Criterion Blu-ray, which I thought was yeah. a pretty good summation of of what we're talking about here. By the way, reading any Criterion box makes like whatever that movie is seem like the best movie that's ever existed. Yeah, and in this case, maybe they're right. Yeah, <laughs> at least it's in everybody's top ten collectively. I myself wrote. <laughs> now that I've read from the box, of uh, the let's Blu-ray, hear how eloquently you put it. I said it was a staggering visualization of melancholy. How about that? Whoa! Holy shit! Criterion, you hearing this? A deep, lonesome feeling brought to life in America. In the parlance of our times, Paris, Texas is the ultimate vibe movie. (laughs) Something that you've declared like 18 different movies as. That may sound reductive, but I assure you it's not meant that way. Because in this instance, you do feel this movie more than anything else. Definitely. Absolutely. Which I know that we never do our subjects justice but in this case we really can't do it justice that's true yeah we're not going to be able to explain this movie right. in a way that really feels the way that it feels to watch this movie. I know, well so much of it is the visual experience which people would be like well then why are you doing it for the pod because it's still fun to talk about because it's the a great moment in the history of forever. that's right and that's what are we here for folks come on yeah it's Exactly what I just said. It's a vibes and feelings movie, and then it catches you off guard. Mm, I believe you had that in one. In that final act, with a sucker punch of emotion that you just don't really even see coming necessarily. Sure, yeah. You're loving this movie. You're thinking, this is great. It's a little bit different from a lot of other films. It's very slow-paced, but you're never bored. And you're thinking it's great, and then it gets to this climax of the film, and you're thinking okay this is the big payoff Uh i'm liking this i'm enjoying this this is worth it and then it's even better than you could have imagined the writing is so good and the acting and the performances and the pacing and the way that that's shot and framed and the shadows and the light and everything else and yeah there's some little weird details that it's kind of an imaginary peep show place that would never really exist (laughs) and you're like, how do they even make money? It doesn't seem like he isn't having to pay anything <laughs> yeah. for this. Like, I don't know what's going on, but whatever. It's still cool. I know and she great. could have sent more money per month back to Hunter if, if they had to actually pay for <laughs> this. <laughs> the film is accompanied by a slide guitar score by Rye oh, Cooter, dude, employing Blind Willie Johnson's "Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground," which Cooter hailed as the most transcendent piece in all American music. And I get it. Oh yeah, it's the perfect soundtrack for what you're seeing on screen yeah i hit on it already but the opening like slide guitar with the shots of the mountains and canyons and you're just like hell yes this is a vibe so let's get into it there's not going to be a ton of clips there's going to be one particularly long clip i will warn everyone before we jump into it i don't think that there's a lot of stuff to necessarily splice into our talking because it's not really that type of movie and there's not really a lot of stuff already online anyway so yeah there won't be a ton of clips but there's going to be one really big one a lot of the dialogue is kind of mundane really there's some important stuff that i wish was available but yeah so without further ado let's get into it wearing a red cap and dirty suit 
Carrying a jug of water, Travis Henderson walks alone through the West Texas desert in a fugue state before stumbling into a bar and losing consciousness. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there's been a ton around him. I mean, it, you are surprised that this guy has been able to live. Yeah. The whole situation with Travis, where he's coming from, what he did during this lost period in his life, this time seems intentionally vague we never really know much about it we're not supposed to know anything about it it's unclear if he knows about it really all right it seems that he's that far out of it and that he's finally hit some sort of a breaking point he comes to this bar and then collapses and it's truly some kind of bar from the outside i don't even know <laughs> that i would know this is a business yeah of yeah any kind it doesn't look like it well this is the word desolate will probably be thrown around a few times but yeah. We are not in a well-populated part of the country here. We have the mournful slide guitar. Of course, Harry Dean Stanton on the screen. 1984, a big year for Stanton. This came out, which I think is his favorite of all of his films, a career that would go on to have 200-plus credits. Yeah, wild. But he also had Repo Man the same year, which is another one of his defining career roles. Oh, yeah. But I think that Travis Henderson is a role of a lifetime for Harry Dean Stanton. It seems like he was born to play this part. Definitely. A German doctor examines Travis and determines he is mute, but discovers a telephone number in Travis's wallet and calls it. The call is answered by Walt, Travis's brother, played by Dean Stockwell, who's living in Los Angeles. Vendors actually found Stockwell on the verge of retirement from acting, and yeah, he's got an interesting career himself. Really revived his career. Yeah. He would go on to be in Blue Velvet, which yeah. Matt was referencing earlier, but he would get TV work. I think he had like a, a series that was big for a while. Oh, that seems right. Yeah. After this. I mean, and, his list of credits is insane, too. Yeah, it really got him going again because he had been a child actor years and years earlier and had done stuff in like the 50s and 60s and whatnot. Mm, yeah, that's right. And then was about to call it a day when he gets this part. Walt has not seen or had contact with Travis for four years, but he agrees to travel to Terlingua, Texas to retrieve him. There are some complications, though. Walt's wife, Anne, played by Aurora Clement, is concerned about the situation as she and Walt have informally adopted Travis's son, Hunter, Hunter's biological mother, Jane, is also MIA. So Anne is thinking, okay, well, what's going to happen? And periodically being reassured by her husband, oh, nothing's going to happen. This is fine. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, Anne's worst nightmare essentially does play out where this child she's been raising as her own is no longer going to be her child. Very right, right, soon. exactly. Walt arrives in Terlingua, and even though Travis has already wandered away from the clinic, he soon finds him nearby. Well, he can't get far on foot. Travis still does not speak, though he seems to recognize Walt, and the two brothers begin driving. And we're kicking off journey one uh -huh. of what will be a two-journey film. That's right. Walt does eventually reach a little bit of a breaking point. This seems like it would be insanely frustrating not seeing this dude for four years and he can't utter a word yeah i guess it would be a mix of relief and then confusion and then frustration and but not knowing if it's his fault or if right. there actually is something wrong with him or not understanding what's happening 
the first motel they stop at is like this weird how about cabin. this place <laughs> and then walt for some reason thinks it'll be a good idea to, to go get new shoes and new clothes for travis and leave travis there by himself even though he already wandered away from the I clinic know. And also was pretty reluctant to get in the car in the first place. I would definitely consider him a flight risk. When Walt leaves, that's the first time we actually see Travis emote at all. And he does seem a little choked up. Then he pretends like he's taking a shower. He turns the water on and then he bails. Walt tracks him back down, though. And Uh eventually they're on the road. And some incredible shots that highlight the enormity of the sky and... The way that it's framed and everything and then they're approaching that little commercial area i guess you would say and that famous shot where they're approaching the rancho motel and then there's like that it feels kind of like a neon thunderstorm in the sky because yeah, there's yeah. all the neon lifting up from the lights of like the rancho motel and the other businesses and then the the sky is a cool color on its own that's right because it's sunset but it's also about the storm and everything and the Texas sky seems so huge and looming over them. I don't know. We say you have to see it, but I feel like you're uh, painting a quite a picture here. Well, occasionally I'll try. Okay. I'm not going to paint every scene. That's right. At a roadside diner, Walt tells Travis that Hunter is living with him and Anne. With Walt becoming increasingly frustrated with Travis's mutinous, uh-huh. Travis finally utters the name Paris, asking to go there. Walt mistakenly assumes he means Paris, France. He does have a French wife. Yeah, which is a weird little coincidence because Uh he immediately assumes that this has some connection with that or something's going on or it's not so out of the realm of possibility that that could be what he's talking about. Right, right. And it's 26 minutes into the film before (laughs) Travis actually speaks. Yeah, okay. Wow, I didn't realize that. Eventually, they make an attempt to fly back to L.A. Yeah, this seemed familiar to you? That proves unsuccessful. I'm not afraid to fly. I just don't want to. (laughs) Well, that's what I was thinking Travis's deal was, too. This was at a time where you could buy a scene where the plane is, like, literally in motion, like, moving. And they're opening the door to, like, let him out. I know. (laughs) Now they'd, like, throw you out of the country if you tried to pull this move. And then there's the weird complication where they're trying to rent the same car that they had just been in. And this is imperative to Travis for some reason, but the rental agency lady is confused and doesn't understand what's going on. And Yeah, he kind of has some like Rain Man tendencies early in the movie. I sort of got that vibe too, and I don't know that this is ever fully explained. It's just some weird eccentricity of yeah. Travis that we never fully understand why he needs to be in the same car. Right. Walt goes along with it. And they do eventually track it down in that massive parking lot, but I don't know. It's kind of a reminder of how massive Texas is, Yeah, where they gloss over Walt's initial journey down to Terlingua, but I'm right. imagining Terlingua is some dusty I know. little border town that's hundreds of miles from like a reasonable airport. Oh, right, yeah. And so it's a two night journey just to get to an airport to Dude. fly back to LA and then he doesn't want to go. I know. What a disaster. <laughs> Obviously uh a lot of it in the first act of the movie is, is Travis's reluctance to return to society. Yeah, it's a painful transition back. We don't know why he has exited society. 
we don't know what the mental block is there. We don't know what happened. We know he has this son. Jane is sort of only being alluded to at this point. Yeah, yeah. We don't really know exactly what the story is there. Obviously, they're not really together now. You're like, this guy had a girlfriend? Wife. Yeah, right. Wife. Once back on the road, driving towards Los Angeles, Travis shows Walt a photograph of a vacant lot in Paris, Texas, which he had purchased, believing he was conceived in that town. And the way he phrases it (laughs) is to say, where I began. Yeah, I have written down, bought that land, because that's where mommy and daddy first made love. Yeah. Not a reason I would buy land, I have to tell you. Yeah, it's interesting to try to decipher what Travis's motivations are and what his line of thinking is. Why does he need to get the same rental yeah, car? Yeah, I think you what get is this obsession so, with Paris, Texas. The Paris, Texas thing seems to be some sort of self-actualization thing. Yeah, he's coming full circle in a weird way and and that seems to be what his quest was when he walks out of that first motel room and just starts heading along the railroad tracks. It seems like he has somewhere in mind because they're sort of having Walt say, what's out there? Where are you heading? Like as if there would be something and it's not just an aimless wandering. But because the movie never actually gets to Paris, Texas, and there's no completion of that journey, you can only sort of piece together what his thinking is. It's interesting that because of the German doctor and finding the phone number, Walt gets reintroduced into his life, and then he sort of changes his navigation. His internal navigation becomes this other journey and this other goal in mind. And he even later tells Hunter, well, I was originally thinking one thing was going to happen, but now I know that's impossible. Uh But he never says what that is, but you can kind of assume maybe he means put together the whole family again but he realizes maybe the damage is too much or whatever you can kind of like take it to whatever you want it to but he's like totally but i have to do this one thing and we understand what the one thing is at the end of the film but you do wonder was this goal of getting to this plot of land was this part of something to do with jane and hunter or was this something else we don't really know sure what he's thinking but for whatever reason, he came back to the States because it seems like he had spent most of the time in Mexico. It's almost as if he just remembered that he had this plot of land and then oh, yeah. it became this <laughs> thing he was going to do. But then he passes out and then all of a sudden Walt's involved and he's like, oh, here's where your son is. And then, okay, well, now I have something else. It doesn't seem like he would have had the means to buy a plot of land, even in a place this desolate, really. Well, I think this happened prior. Yeah. But when he talks about his past and the whole way that he lived, like the money stuff and... How much do you think this could have cost? Dude, I don't know. Like a couple hundred bucks, probably. Look at it. I know. And this would have been in the 70s, probably. Yeah, right. They might have just been giving it away. <laughs> Who else would want it? <laughs> Travis remains coy about those missing four years. Never reveals to Walt when Walt asks. Would you even be clear that this guy could remember, like, yesterday? Well, once he starts talking, yeah. you would think you're going to ask, at least. <laughs> I know. So what the fuck, man? <laughs> like, yeah. what's been going on? And as he's mentally returning back to reality a little bit, he's coming to terms with the idea of his son, and he's asking about him, and 
Walt is saying that he's not quite eight yet, but you've been gone for four years. And it's sort of a sad, but almost sweet in its naivete moment where he asks, is four years a long time? He's not being sarcastic or a dick or he's actually asking, is four years a long time? Uh He's not really sure. And then Walt has to be like, well, to a kid who is Uh, eight, yeah, that's half of his life. And those are some formative years from four to eight, I'd say. Walt and Travis finally reach L.A., and Travis is reunited with Anne and Hunter. As I mentioned, Hunter Carson, son of the writer L.M. Kit Carson and Karen Black, who we talked about a little bit in Five Easy Pieces. I would say despite Anne's concerns about the situation, she's very sweet to Travis. Yeah. I think that based on the Super 8 movies that we're going to get to in a bit uh-huh. and everything. It seems like there was a past with everyone and there was a, a happier a time. reasonable relationship. Yeah. And I guess there was a lot of concern over his well-being. Right. It's possible that they assumed he was dead. He's uh, been missing for four think. years, yeah. essentially, with no word. <laughs> no idea. Since Hunter is still so young... He has very little memory of his father and remains wary of Travis. It's a rather uneasy transition back to the world of the living, re-entering society, and being reunited with his son. Travis sits outside a lot, using binoculars to watch traffic and to watch planes landing at the nearby airport. He tries to make himself useful by cleaning the house and polishing everyone's shoes outside. And Hunter isn't exactly sure how to deal with his returning father. He avoids Travis when Travis wants to walk him home from school. Sort of this odd, well, it would be weird moment. Yeah, yeah. I think it's in Hunter's defense a tough situation. Yeah, I do think that Walt and Anne are being a little unreasonable about that moment. I know they should say to Travis, like, why don't you try to engage with him around the house when we're around first and get him more comfortable because he's not really sure what's going on. And Hunter does remain aloof until they all watch Super 8 home movies from days when everyone was together. And this is our first look at Jane, played by Natasha Kinski, sort of like the shark from Jaws at this point, (laughs) looming over the story. (laughs) Because... Look, it doesn't really take a genius to put some of this together. You can kind of tell that they had some sort of a tumultuous relationship. Something went wrong, as it sometimes does, and it was so terrible that he wandered off into Mexico for <laughs> four, four years. years. <laughs> yeah, I know. Which um, I totally get. <laughs> you've been in some of those types of relationships, right? Yeah, where I wandered into Millville for yeah. four years. <laughs> Okay, so now that we're seeing Kinski for the first time, I guess we should start to address at least one of the elephants in the room. Oh, please, yeah. There is a approximately 35-year age gap between Kinski and Harry Dean Stanton, who was already almost 60 years old when <laughs> you this are movie like, came out. Watching it, you're like, how did Harry Dean Stanton then play this character for like another 30 years? Yeah, almost 40, Right, basically. yeah. Harry Dean Stanton, for his part, was uncomfortable with the age gap and had to be talked into it a little bit. 
I do think that, and I know this is like making excuses, and this probably would never fly today in any way, shape, or form. And I was saying to you before we started recording, Uh if this movie came out in 2022 and was well-received by critics and was getting this buzz like it did back then, there'd be endless think pieces about a couple of things that happened in the film. But the age gap situation here, especially when you do the math and you figure out how old hunter is and how old kinski was when this film was made and you're trying to figure that out and you're like wait a minute how old was she when they were married Uh like a teenager right it gets very weird but i do think this is a rare situation where there should just be a free pass in my opinion (laughs) i just like the way you frame that up the real ages of the actors don't necessarily have to be their characters ages i know that later in the film travis does specify that he met Jane when she was, quote, 17 or 18. Hmm. You know, I don't know there'd be leeway on that. Yeah. Or yeah. now. In- You're not sure? And he is definitely supposed to be older than her, obviously. For That's sure. Without right. a doubt. Yeah. But he doesn't need to be as old as Harry Dean Stanton actually was in 1984. And I do think that based on when they're saying Hunter was born and everything, that they are kind of aging yeah. Natasha Kinski up a little bit, actually. Because the math there, right? she would have been even younger when they first met yeah, if yeah, she was yeah. playing her real age, right? I think. so. I know. But on the other hand, it's like, who's to say that there haven't been these situations? I mean, oh, there no, certainly of course there have were. been, right? So why couldn't it be depicted in a movie? No, yeah. Well, yeah. I agree with that, of yeah. course. But it's just that the movie doesn't speak to that sure. specifically. Yeah. However... When you do examine the text and and get into all the issues and what happens and everything, you could potentially theorize that their age gap played a part in I some of so. their issues and whatnot. So I think it would be fair to at least make some assumptions there. Yeah. So on the one hand, they don't address it specifically like this is not appropriate or anything, but... It had Indirectly, some, you can read yeah. into it if you want. It had potentially some downstream impacts. Now, when they're watching these Super 8 movies and they're all having this fun together on the Gulf Coast down in Texas and everyone seems happy and everything and you're coming off of this four-year period of living off the map or whatever, I was trying to get into the headspace of like, how would I react to watching this home movie? <laughs> Shut it off. Yeah. George C. Scott and Hardcore. <laughs> Shut it off. Yeah, I, I don't know. He seems to take it in stride. Yeah. And I guess he emotes enough to where Hunter is able to to see how his father really feels about his mother. And it sort of melts the ice between them in a way. That's right. Yeah. But aside from that, I don't know. He remains pretty stoic about it, where I think I would be kind of like squirming a little bit more. Like, I don't know if I want to watch this. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Hello, I went to Mexico for four years to like escape these thoughts. (laughs) Thanks for dragging me back in. It's a job well done making this feel like homey and welcoming. Even this whole little setup where he's like staying downstairs in the basement. I'm like, man, this seems like it must be heaven after being out. (laughs) Wherever the hell he was. Sleeping in the sand. Yeah, yeah. As I said, the home movies seem to thaw young Hunter's feelings towards his estranged father. They serve as evidence of a past together, 
As Hunter watches Travis watch the movies, he realizes that Travis still loves Jane, his biological mother. This spurs father and son to become reacquainted, which yeah. puts a strain on Anne as she's afraid of losing the boy. And this seems like it would be tough for Hunter <laughs> watching this movie. It's a little... Yeah, I do think that the way that they portray Hunter's character is a little unbelievable. Yeah. I don't know that he would necessarily react the way he does about everything and be so gung-ho about this plan that they come up with and just run away and do it because the whole thing seems sort of scary and daunting and unknown and I know and you're basically like used to these other people kind of being your parents but I can't speak to it I can't speak to that feeling of knowing that your real mother is out there and yeah wanting to find her and all that stuff so I don't know but he does sort of flip pretty quickly from being very cold on the situation yeah. to being all in. Walt, though, is all frustratingly <laughs> pragmatic about the whole thing, which leads to arguments between he and Anne. That's where right. he's like, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> Everything's the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then Anne reveals to Travis that Jane used to call and ask after Hunter and then started making monthly deposits into a bank account for him. Anne has traced the deposits to a bank in Houston. I will say it doesn't take Travis super long to jump to the conclusion that he needs to go find her. Yeah, (laughs) which makes you question what Anne's motivation is here. Yeah. I was wondering if she was trying to push Travis to go find Jane, but not thinking he would take Hunter. Right. Because why else is she telling him this? Yeah, right yeah, now? yeah. I know. Right after it, she was having a panic attack right. about the whole thing. It does seem a bit early. He's still so re entering into society. He's still acting kind of strange. We were discussing earlier before we started recording the whole thing with how Hunter arrives at Anne and Walt's house. And there's a little bit of ambiguity to it. But I think that there's ambiguity to a lot of this movie, intentionally so. Most notably, of course, the four years and the missing time even for Jane and and explaining everything that happens because you don't really need to know that stuff. I think some of the ambiguity ends up like you start filling in some of the gaps yourself, but it's not necessarily correct information. Yeah, I do think Walt says something to the effect of somebody dropped Hunter off and he wasn't really able to say who it was or how he got here, but Uh he's here. So. The idea is that it really wasn't Jane, but you're not sure who she would have trusted to right. take her son. Or You don't know. You're not really sure. Travis rarely sleeps, and one night he wanders around after getting the information from Anne. I guess he's doing some thinking about what he's got to do. Uh-huh. That's when he encounters the crazy guy yelling off of an overpass. Yeah. You will all be caught with your diapers down. Right out of your 
absolutely nowhere in this godforsaken valley. I'm talking about from the range of my voice right here, clear out to the goddamn Mojave Desert, and beyond that, clear out past Barstow's, and everywhere else in the valley, all the way to Arizona. None of that area will be called a safety zone. There will be no safety zone. I can guarantee you the safety zone will be eliminated, eradicated. You will all be extradited to the land of no return. It's a navigation to nowhere. And if you think that's going to be fun, you've got another thing coming. I may be a slime bucket, but believe me, I know what the hell I'm talking about. I'm not crazy. And don't say I didn't warn you. I warned you. I you. One of the coolest shots of the movie, him walking across this bridge. Yeah. The guy's like, I didn't even, the shit he's saying is oh, so I know. fucking wild. They'll pull your diapers down. They'll get you with the, don't say I didn't warn you. I've seen these guys like hanging outside the pirate games. Yeah. And Travis just sort of pats the guy on the shoulder yeah. and keeps walking. And the guy looks at him, but then just keeps yelling it over the overpass. <laughs> yeah. Travis tells Walt that he needs some money and a credit card. Yeah, which seems dangerous. And Walt is just like, all right, okay. Walt is shockingly a good sport about it, I guess. He feels bad. Yeah, and this bizarre void. Obviously, he remembers what life was like before. Well, he's just rolling in yeah. that billboard dough. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you were afraid of heights. No, I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of falling. Oh, yeah? Well, just don't look down. Uh, too bad th- things don't look the same on the ground. What do you mean? Well, things are clearer up here. Might clear things up. Yeah, I had a talk with Ann last night. Yeah, she's pretty upset. Yeah, I know. I'm going to leave. What? I'm leaving. I didn't tell you this in order to make you leave. I'm not trying to get rid of you, Travis. No, no. Well, what good is that going to do? I'm gonna I mean, fu- that's not going to solve anything. No, that. I'm going to find Jane. How are you going to do that? It's been four years. She completely disappeared. I tried to find her. I tried everything. I couldn't find her. Yeah, well, I haven't tried yet. I can find her. What makes you so sure? Well, I just know. Can we go down now? No! God damn it! You tell me what happened, Travis. I'm sick of this fucking mystery. I've been treating you like a spoiled kid ever since I picked you up in the desert. Now you tell me what happened with you and Jane. Shit! I know it's none of my business. Uh, I'm gonna need to take, uh, money, credit cards, all right, I'm sure you can have it. You know, you'll get it back. Oh, forget that. You can have it. I want to find it, Walt. Travis makes it known, essentially, what he's going to do, but they don't really see it coming, I guess. Travis realizes he can possibly find Jane if he shows up at the bank in Houston on the day of the next deposit. The fifth of the month. Only a few days away. 
He acquires a cheap vehicle and borrows money from Walt. When he tells Hunter he is leaving to find Jane, Hunter says he wants to go too. The pair take off almost at once, not even bothering to tell Walt or Anne until they've already traveled yeah. many, many miles and Hunter calls from a payphone. I'm thinking Walt and Anne would have been a no on Hunter going. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because there's really no scenario where this plays out in a way that would be beneficial to them or yeah, yeah. in a positive way. Somewhere along the lines on this road trip, there's a shot of them driving along and Hunter's like riding in the back of this truck. Yeah. It seems like this road has to be at least 50 miles an hour. <laughs> this seems like there's no way. This second journey carries with it a certain weight. You just sense it. We're heading somewhere. Viewer. Yeah. The film locates something elusive, something almost instinctual. The mysteries of love and family and identity. In a weird way, it's as if Travis and Hunter are responding to a call only they can hear. It's some sort of a secret mission. I'd almost compare it to time travel in some strange way. They're in search of the past, hoping to find Jane as she once was, a wife, a mother. At this stage of the film, we don't yet know the extent of the trauma, but it's clear something went very wrong in the past. But the idea with this journey is that maybe it can be made right again in some way. Yeah, yeah. And so this is a quest that they're on. Seeking some sort of uh, catharsis. When Travis and Hunter arrive in Houston, they stake out the bank, splitting up and using some walkie-talkies that they bought. Yeah, we'll split up. Looking Doesn't at seem this... super responsible to let Hunter just <laughs> hang out and fall asleep I know. right next to a bank drive-thru. They both fall asleep. <laughs> some stakeout this is. Watching this, you're like, there's a 0% chance. There's no way they're finding her. Well, it's almost like fate. Yeah. A couple of hours passed, and they both fall asleep, but Hunter awakens just in time to identify his mother in a car making a drive-in deposit. He calls for Travis on the walkie-talkie, waking him up, and they chase after Jane's car. The first time you saw this movie, did you have any idea where this was going? Hell no. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird and out of the blue not that she works at a peep show but the style of peep show that it is even and the, the building that, they that create. it's in yeah everything seems weird even this little looks like a restaurant hangout area that's actually like just for the workers that he initially stumbles into or maybe there's like a, a certain time at night where that opens up yeah because he says it's too early the girls oh, are that's working true, or something. Yeah. they eventually find her car on the highway and follow her to a rundown section of town. So we go from the massive skyscrapers right. and concrete jungle of Houston to this more, I would say, broken down uh -huh. area that doesn't seem like the city proper. We're sort of in the outskirts. I think that's fair to say. Jane has gone to a peep show club where she works. While Hunter waits outside, Travis goes in finding the business has rooms with one-way mirrors where clients converse with strippers via telephone. So yes, there's this upstairs portion. There's a live band that's a tuning up and getting ready to play. There's Christmas lights decorating the room. You do remember that they said it was November. So 
you're not sure if that's an all year round type thing or if that's the holiday spirit going on in this place or what. <laughs> yeah. It's an upstairs bar. Travis sees Jane briefly upstairs, but she doesn't see him. And then downstairs in a booth, he eventually tracks her down. But because of the one-way mirror, she doesn't see him. And what a scene it is in these booths. No, 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 don't. Please, please leave it on. I'm sorry. I just don't know exactly what it is you want. I don't want anything. Well, why'd you come here then?
there something you want to tell me? No. You can tell me I can keep a secret. All you do is just talk. Well, yeah. Yeah, mostly. And listen. What else do you do? Why are you laughing? Sorry. I'm sorry. So what else do you do? Nothing, really. Oh, well, we, we're not allowed to see the customers out of here. No, sir, we don't. We're not allowed to have any outside relationships with the customers. Yeah, but you can really see them if you want to, can't you? I mean, you can go home with them if you want to. All these places say that. I mean, how much extra money do you make? How much, how much money do you make on the side? I just don't think I'm the one you want to talk to. to talk to strangers sometimes. It's a little too much emotion this first time for old Trav. Yeah. He almost freaks out at one point and 
ruins it by like yelling at her. It gets a little weird. Yeah. And confrontational. But then he eventually panics and leaves without really get- getting anywhere in this exchange between uh-huh. the two. The filmmakers opted not to portray a realistic peep show as they needed a format that allowed for more communication between the characters. Kinski could not actually see anyone, only a mirror in the peep show scenes, and she said that this created a genuine feeling of solitude. Okay. She also wrote a diary for the character Jane to help develop her backstory, imagining her immigrating from Europe and getting more affection from Travis than she had from anyone, which I guess was her way of explaining how she could possibly fall in love with Harry Dean (laughs) Stanton. Because Kinski in this film is bleached blonde, very beautiful, Uh young, still so young, maybe 24 or 25 or something like that. You're like, what's she doing with this dinosaur? (laughs) Yeah, it's disturbing. Right. So now, considering that didn't go according to plan, it's regroup time. Although you could look at it as the, the giving pra- up. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they yeah. drive far enough away right. where you're thinking, was he just not going to go back at That's first? true. That is the first thought. Because eventually when they do return, Hunter's the one that's like left. I forgot about this little like detour that they take to this other Oh, this is getting real sad. Yeah, yeah. But I think it works for the movie, but also like just the character. The time away, he needed this like practice run, you know? Yeah, he needed to see her and understand the situation. It, it it ends up being beneficial that she just so happens to work at this place where she's in a room where you can talk to her, but she can't see you. That's right. It's funny how that works <laughs> out. too perfect. Yeah. But yeah, it's great. Travis gets drunk at a bar, and then he and Hunter spend the night in a back room of a laundromat. Bizarre. This feels Lynchian, this I, right. room. Yeah, like, yeah. What is this room that they find? It's not a hotel room. They're not uh-huh. paying for this. There's a laundromat, like a real rundown yeah. town. You can't even imagine how shitty this town is. And then there's a laundromat, and then they go into this back room. There's a couch, yeah, yeah. a chair, a Coke machine, <laughs> and then an ancient television. Above them is a naked light bulb hanging from the ceiling, and then he launches into this story about his mother, Travis right. does. Well, Travis, I think, describes the place as not a place to bring a fancy woman. Yeah, and yeah. that leads into his mo- mother not being a fancy woman, but he's sort of repeating the joke that he had told Walt That's about, right. that yeah. their father used to say, introducing their mother as being from Paris, and then th- the pause, Texas, and then saying Texas, yeah. and then eventually starting to believe that she was from Paris, believing this lie. Right, and then right. he, when he repeats this to his son, it has a more, I don't want to say dark, because that's not the right word, but sadder tone yeah. to it, where he's trying to make it seem funny to Walt, in his own weird way, where I just came uh-huh. out of the desert from four years, and <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to say, oh yeah, daddy had a joke. <laughs> A little quirky. Yeah. But then when he's saying it to his son and he's drunk and he's sort of letting the emotion out, there seems to be this resentment almost. And you're wondering, is this movie about living in poverty or being poor or being ashamed of who you are? Is that part of it? Is there a feeling that he's carrying the burden of who he is on his back and that contributes to who he is and the choices he's made and his problems with alcohol, which we don't even really know about yet. Yeah. 
and all of that stuff is that part of this past and finding humor in that joke but then also hating it in a way and then buying the plot of land in paris texas to come full circle i don't know the next day father and son return to downtown houston let's give it another go and if you pay attention to that sign when they're turning off of that street, that horrible street with the bar and that laundromat, uh, yeah. it says like 127 miles to Houston. So Quite a detour. It does seem like he w- had panicked yeah. enough to leave completely. Like, this isn't going to work. I can't do it. Right, right. But Hunter encourages him to go back. And they drive back to Houston, and Travis leaves Hunter at the Meridian Hotel with a recorded message that says... He feels obligated to reunite mother and son as he feels responsible for separating them in the first place. Alone, Travis returns to the Peep Show Club. Mm -hmm. Seeing Jane again, and with her seemingly still unaware of who he is, he begins to tell her a story ostensibly about other people. Yeah, although I think it's pretty quick that we're like, oh, this is them. It seems to take her a lot longer. Although... I think they do a reasonable job of giving her a reason that she doesn't know that it's him. Sure. It's a movie reason. It's not a real life reason. Right. Where she says that every man's voice is his voice now. Uh Uh-huh. And that you could believe that even though she's probably recognizing a lot of the details of what he's saying, that she's sort of in denial about it. Sure. But also, why now? Why four years, like all of a sudden this guy's back in her life? I think it would be jarring and take a little bit to actually feel like this is really happening so here we are this is going to be a super long clip the longest we've ever used in this yeah deal with podcast, it podcast by far to the point where you're probably going to be losing your minds if you don't love the clips but i feel like it's worth it fair warning yeah just mash the fast forward button if you need to but it's please don't a great scene <laughs> i did not want to break it up because the scene is beyond powerful it is so effective. I, I would compare it to a sucker punch. Oh, yeah. The first time I ever watched this movie, I was caught off guard by it. I'm just like, whoa, where is this coming from? Oh, I know. It's like almost unexpected. Travis turns away from her to start, and he's talking into this phone, and the way that they have it where the, the girls at this club, they are in these rooms and they're like themed rooms like yeah. motel room coffee shop beach whatever so she's sitting in this well-lit room and he's mostly in darkness so you have the darkness versus the light and then he begins to talk and it does take her a while to realize who it is can i tell you something sure anything you like it's kind of long I knew these people. What people? These two people. They were in love with each other. The girl was very young, about 
17 or 18, I guess. And the guy was quite a bit older. And he was kind of raggedy and wild. And she was very beautiful, you know? Yeah. And together they turned everything into a kind of an adventure. And she liked that. Just an ordinary trip down to the grocery store was full of adventure. And they were always laughing at stupid things. He liked to make her laugh. And they didn't much care for anything else uh, because all they wanted to do was be with each other. They were always together. Sounds like they were very happy. <laughs> yes, they were. They were real happy. And he, he loved her more than he ever felt possible. He couldn't stand being away from her um, during the day when he went to work. So he'd quit just to be home with her. Then he'd get another job when the money ran out. And then he'd quit again. But pretty soon she started to worry. About what? Money, I guess. Not having enough. Hmm? Not knowing when the next check was coming in. So he started to get kind of torn inside. How do you mean? Well, he knew he had to work to support her, but he couldn't stand being away from her either. And the more he was away from her, the crazier he got. Except now, he got really crazy. He started imagining all kinds of things. Like what? He started thinking that she was seeing other men on the sly. He'd come home from work and accuse her of spending the day with somebody else. He'd yell at her and break things in the trailer. Excuse me, sir, but were you to visit me the other day? I don't mean to pry. No. Oh. <laughs> I thought I recognized your voice for a minute. No. Wasn't me. Mm-hmm. Please go on. Anyway, he started to drink real bad. And he'd stay out late to test her. 
to see if she'd get jealous. He wanted her to get jealous, but she didn't. She's just worried about him. But that got him even matter. Why? Because he thought if she never got jealous of him, that she didn't really care about him. Jealousy was a sign of her love for him. And then one night, one night, she told him that she was pregnant. She was about three or four months pregnant, and he didn't even know. And then suddenly everything changed. He stopped drinking and got a steady job. He was convinced that she loved him now because she was carrying his child. And he was going to dedicate himself to making a home for her. But a funny thing started to happen. What? He didn't even notice it at first. She started to change. From the day the baby was born, she began to get irritated with everything around her. She got mad at everything. Even the baby seemed to be an injustice to her. He kept trying to make everything all right for her, buy her things, take her out to dinner once a week. But nothing seemed to satisfy her. For two years, he struggled to pull them back together like they were when they first met. Finally, he knew that it was never going to work out. So he hit the bottle again, but this time it got mean. This time, when he came home late at night, she wasn't worried about him or jealous. She was just enraged. She accused him of holding her captive by making her have a baby. She told him that she dreamed about escaping. That was all she dreamed about—escape. She saw herself at night running naked down a highway, running across fields, running down riverbeds, always running. And always, just when she was about to get away, he'd be there. He would stop her somehow. He would just appear and stop her. And when she told him these dreams. He believed them. He knew she had to be stopped, or she'd leave him forever. So he tied a cowbell to her ankle, so he could hear at night if she tried to get out of bed. But she learned how to muffle the bell by stuffing a sock into it and inching her way out of the bed and into the night. He caught her one night when the sock fell out, and he heard her trying to run to the highway. Caught her, dragged her back to the trailer, and tied her to the stove with his belt. He just left her there and went back to bed and lay there listening to her scream. Then he listened to his son's scream. He was surprised at himself because he didn't feel anything anymore. All he wanted to do was. Sleep. And for the first time, he wished he were far away, lost in a deep, vast country where nobody knew him, somewhere without language or streets. 
and he dreamed about this place without knowing its name. And when he woke up, he was on fire. There were blue flames burning the sheets of his bed. He ran through the flames toward the only two people he loved, but they were gone. His arms were burning and he threw himself outside and rolled on the wet ground. Then he ran. He never looked back at the fire. He just ran. He ran until the sun came up. And he couldn't run any further. And when the sun went down, he ran again. For five days he ran like this until every sign of man had disappeared. Travis. If you turn the light off in there, will you be able to see me? I don't know. I never tried. Do you want to see him? Yeah. I wanted to see him so bad that I didn't even dare imagine him anymore. Anne kept sending me pictures of him. 
until I asked her to stop. I couldn't stand the pain of seeing him grow up and missing it. I didn't have what I knew he needed. I didn't want to use him to fill all my emptiness. Well, he needs you now, Jane. And he wants to see you. He does? I used to make up long speeches to you after you left. I used to talk to you all the time, even though I was alone. I walked around for months talking to you. Now, I don't know what to say. It was easier when I just imagined you. I even imagined you talking back to me. We'd have long conversations, the two of us. It was almost like you were there. I could hear you. I could see you, smell you. I could hear your voice. Sometimes your voice would wake me up. It would wake me up in the middle of the night just like you were there in the room with me. 
then it slowly faded. I couldn't picture you anymore. I tried to talk out loud to you like I used to, but there was nothing there. I couldn't hear you. Then, I just gave up. Everything stopped. You, just disappeared. Now I'm working here. I hear your voice all the time. Every man has your voice. Meridian Hotel. Yeah. Room 1520. One of the iconic shots is when his face ends up juxtaposed over her reflection through the mirrors. I know. And then it's all very shadowy. It's kind That's of right. like almost jarring looking where yeah. it's so strange to see Harry Dean Stanton with that blonde hair. <laughs> You're like, what's going on? Yeah. Travis describes a man and a younger girl who meet, marry, and have a wild up and down relationship. The couple mm. have a child together and the birth of the child turns their world upside down. The wife suffers from postpartum blues and dreams of escaping the family. I get it. The husband descends into alcoholism and becomes abusive, imprisoning her in the trailer where they live. Yeah, and I think, important to point out, intentionally trying to be psychologically abusive, too. Yeah, there's a lot of... Doing things to try to make her jealous and... Insecurity is the big thing in the relationship where he is so much older than her, and she is very attractive and young and beautiful and full of life and he doesn't feel like he can keep up with her and he assumes that she would cheat on him and he's always jealous of her and then she doesn't react the same way because she actually loves him and is not jealous and mostly worries about him but then that infuriates him further because he wants her to be jealous and then <laughs> I know 
he ends up tying a cowbell around her ankle so that she won't escape at night. Insane. It's almost something out of a twisted fairy tale or something. Right, Where yeah. it's so bizarre and you're thinking, okay. Yeah, do you think maybe some of his behavior was pushing her away? <laughs> After a failed attempt to escape, the man ties the woman to the trailer stove and goes to bed, dreaming of withdrawing to an unknown place without language or streets, as he puts it. While his wife and child scream from the kitchen, he wakes up to find the trailer on fire and his family gone, and in despair, runs for five days until leaving civilization entirely. Jane realizes she is speaking with Travis and that he is recounting the story of their relationship He tells her that Hunter is with him in Houston and needs his mother, and Jane has longed to be reunited with her son. In tears, she tells of her emotions and pain, saying that she has had conversations with Travis in her mind for years and never knew what happened to him and how this would go and what she would say. And It's actually him that halts their potential reunion. She seems confused by that at first, where she seems somewhat open and willing to see him because right now they are between glass. And yes, she shut the light off in her little room and she's able to see him through the glass now. But I thought I was like questioning that. I think it would work with some kinds of one way mirrors. I don't know. All right. I don't think they made it up for this. I, I, I know. I believe that it just, I was like, Oh, okay. But He knows better. He somehow has reached this wisdom that it's not going to be between them. Mm -hmm. And that he's serving this purpose to bring her son back to her. That's right. To repair that. So in that sense. Find some harmony. Maybe this would play in 2022 where. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There is no happy ending in the sense that he just gets to be back with this wife that he was abusive towards. Right, yeah. 35 years There's no going back, and he recognizes that for those two. She agrees to go to the hotel room where Hunter is waiting, and then that's it as far as Jane and Travis are concerned as any potential communication between the two. That whole sequence is so powerful, but I expect at the end that she's going to be a little bit more pensive or like hesitant, but she kind of is like, all right, yeah, let's go see him. Imagine being the next guy in the booth. (laughs) I'm sensing a weird vibe here. I'm thinking she's taking like a cigarette break after this one. Am I still going to be able to jack off? What's going on? (laughs) Is this still a thing? By the way, I thought I had to like pay for this type of service. Does no one collect my money? (laughs) I know that they built this as like a fantasy peep show booth so that they could have a thing where they can talk like this and everything, but it doesn't seem like there's any money being exchanged. (laughs) I don't know what's supposed to be happening here. I know. You can just walk in. Assume that you're not a drifter who wandered out of the desert after four (laughs) years to find your missing wife to reunite her with her son. You're just a Houston businessman on his lunch break. (laughs) Looking to crank one out. How does this work? Do you have to give anybody money or is this completely free? I know. (laughs) (laughs) They're taking donations. No wonder it's a business on the outskirts of town. They don't seem very savvy. Oh, we're supposed to charge for this. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Not a lot of security either, to be honest. I know. He's wandering around pretty unchecked. Yeah. 
That night, Jane enters the hotel room while Travis watches from the parking lot. And in a film of exquisite looking shots, folks, this is the one. Oh, yeah. I don't know where this light comes from, but they're able to bathe the outside parking lot in this green, neonish light, but it still looks real. I know. It looks incredible. I'm not even sure how Travis is able to see Hunter's up on the 15th floor. Yeah, that part seemed implausible. As Jane embraces Hunter, Travis climbs into his vehicle and drives away. Things have been set right. Mission accomplished, That's so right. he just pieces out. Uh-huh. Back to the desert. Presumably, yes. He goes yeah. back to where he came from. We don't know where he's heading or what he's going to do. All I could think of, though, was poor Walt and Anne. Lost Hunter. Yeah. We raised this boy for four years, and we've lost him now. Uh-huh. But- Hey, they got their weekends back. Presumably, Jane is going to do the right thing and allow Hunter to be a part of their lives still in some way. She does kind of owe them a huge debt of gratitude One would here. think, yeah. I'm thinking Jane might need to make some life changes at this point, you know? Well- Yeah. I mean, I don't want to shame her. She could keep this job, certainly. Yeah, we don't really know how bad it is or we don't we don't know. It seems kind of nice and then <laughs> They really do make Travis it... should have given her that credit card that Walt's just <laughs> floating the bill for. Who do you think paid for that Meridian Hotel? No room? kidding. Yeah, I know. So Paris, Texas does turn into a story of redemption in the end. Because even though Travis is the main character and the protagonist and we're seeing things through his perspective, as weird and as sad as it may seem, he's not infallible. He did something bad. He was definitely abusive and not receptive to his wife's problems. Her problems seemed much more of a mental nature. I think postpartum depression is very common, and, and they don't ever say that by name, but that's pretty much what you're supposed to believe there, yeah, yeah. that she just sort of goes off the... right the edge there after the birth of the son and is really having a hard time. And his reaction is to not take this well because he was dealing with his own insecurities over their relationship and everything else. And he yeah. didn't, it was a house of cards. He paints it even in this beautiful, great scene. Uh-huh. He's painting it like I loved you so much that I didn't want to be away from you. Yeah. That's why I couldn't work. But that's insane jealousy. Oh yeah. And craziness that really it's... isn't acceptable. So he's, finally doing the right thing by fixing something that got broken because of his bad decisions. If you want to reduce tying your wife to the stove as a bad decision. (laughs) Yeah. I think if we could have some redos, that would be one he would redo. (laughs) I'd like a a mulligan mulligan on the whole uh, tying my wife to a stove thing. (laughs) That one might have been a mistake. Yeah, well... What can you say? I know. It's a beautiful film. It's one of my favorite films, I think, which is why we're doing it on the show, even though it's not really the most conducive to the stuff we usually do. That's right. But But if you haven't seen it before, please check it out. And as you scroll through the catalog, it would be incomplete if we didn't have this on there, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It was a favorite film of both Kurt Cobain and Elliot Smith, so kind of... There you go. Ominous, I yeah. guess. How about that? Yeah. What happened oh, to boy. both of those guys? But that makes sense in a sure. way. Yeah. <laughs> Although 
I don't really think of this as a depressing movie. No, I'm not depressed by the end of it. I'm not elated. I'm not. It's not a joyful movie either. But I think that, like I said, it is a redemption story, and you kind of feel positive. You love to see Hunter and his mother hugging at the end of the film, and just overcome with this emotion. And he almost jumps up into her, where Uh he's like wrapped around her. Yeah, it's just sort of heavy. But I mean, I think of that as both. I guess bittersweet is maybe the best way to describe it. It's not just like completely sad. Yeah. So I think that will do it for our Paris, Texas discussion. And we can move along to recommendations. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. I'm going to let you go first. Yeah, because mine's, mine's worse. Not really a recommendation. <laughs> kind of mine isn't really either. But I watched the first episode. I, I was kind of excited to see the material being revisited. The Showtime series, American Gigolo. Pretty big bummer, in my opinion, to not have it entirely set in the '80s. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, how can this be? But of course, you and me are um, fans of the movie. We did it for the show, so I'm interested. I'm I'm checking it out. What is it? Is it just a remake? No, or? the character is similar. Yeah, it stars John Bernthal. Is Richard Gere like involved at all? Not so far. I know Schrader isn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he said something about getting a check for it. Okay. Or something or <laughs> yeah, good for him. Something. So it's similar theme, but it's more like he gets framed for killing one of the women more in like the time of the eighties and goes to jail for like 20 years and then is like let out because they realized that he was framed. Okay. So you're kind of jumping in time in the first episode. And this is on what channel? It's on Showtime. Okay. For some reason I thought it was a stars thing. No, it's Showtime, but I'm not in love, but I love the movie. So it's, it's worth checking out. We'll see how it goes. So I wanted to talk about something. I guess you would file this under a, a not recommendation okay. more than a recommendation. So usually the section usually reserved for me. <laughs> yeah. I haven't been watching a ton of stuff that really makes sense to recommend to people. It's stuff that I'm sure they would have watched by now if they wanted to is mostly what I'm watching. Rewatching the X-Files, rewatching Arrested, Arrested Development. Development, same old shit. What We Do in the Shadows. Yeah, I've been watching What We Do in the Shadows which is at least a current thing. But I wanted to talk about Jurassic Park Dominion, which I just watched finally. Yeah. Did not go to the theater for it, which is kind of appropriate because I saw Jurassic Park yeah. and The Lost World in the theater, but not Jurassic Park 3. Okay. I see. saw Jurassic World right. and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom <laughs> in the theater, but not Dominion. A little bit of a trend here. Fallen Kingdom was probably the worst movie of that year, whatever year that uh-huh. was. Yeah, I remember. We hated it. Awful. It was terrible. It took place in a house, which is not really what you're looking for from a Jurassic sure. Park yeah. film. And it started to go down different roads where you're thinking, oh, God, really? So this is more about cloning than dinosaurs at this point. Yeah, and Dominion picks up where Fallen Kingdom left off and is just as bad if not worse, I can't really remember Fallen Kingdom, wow. so I don't know. But equally as bad, I guess. Yeah. 
first of all, it's expecting you to remember the story of Fallen Kingdom. I was kind of like, what's going on here? What is this? What's happening? Yeah. They waited to unleash the extended version onto Peacock, which is longer than the theatrical cut, I guess. And I can't imagine the theatrical cut being any worse because it at least would be shorter. (laughs) In these instances, I wish these people would just be like, no, you're not getting another cut. They probably just did that as a marketing thing to let that happen because they're like, well, it got bad reviews. So if we are saying we're releasing a different cut on Peacock, maybe it'll get more people to watch it. People were clamoring for this cut. I've seen some people say they liked it. I don't really know why or how. It's a Jurassic Park movie where the dinosaurs seem to be second fiddle for a lot of it. You don't really get any great dinosaur scenes, in my opinion. They bring back the legacy characters, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum. They don't really give them that much to do that is really that exciting. There's a whole subplot about locusts and the end of the world through that sense because they're going to eat everything that we eat and that our food eats, basically grain, whatever. But like, you know, really? This is Jurassic Park. I know. And I think at the end of the day... All it really does, as a terrible sixth Jurassic Park film, fifth sequel, is illuminate the fact that the original Jurassic Park, which we covered on this show, uh-huh. which is an A+, one of the great films of our lives. Absolutely, really, yep. Never needed a single sequel, yeah. let alone five. They've never really figured out how to do it in a way that recaptures that magic, that's for sure. I will say that the original trilogy is all reasonable of course the sure. first movie is an a plus absolutely yeah the lost world and jurassic park 3 are not great films they but they're watchable yeah and then jurassic world i know everyone hates chris pratt now and blah 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 whatever uh, yeah. jurassic world is fine sure for updating the whole idea where they're somehow still in a world where jurassic park happened but they're going to revive this idea and actually do it again okay it's fine it's not like amazing or anything, but no. it's enjoyable. But the fall off Dude. to the next two is insane. I know. I'm talking Halloween Resurrection type sequels at this point. <laughs> yeah. Granted, a much bigger budget and much more bigger box office. But it's bizarre. I don't understand what they're even thinking. I guess they keep trying to reinvent the wheel they think that a simple dinosaur movie isn't going to be enough they have to come up with other stuff i don't know why i don't get it but they just can't create something nearly as imaginative and magical as that first jurassic park movie it, they just lack yeah the ability to do it obviously when money's on the table they're always going to try to do sequels if they can totally but there are certain films that just transcend the need for sequels in a way that almost never gets respected. Yeah. But very rarely does anything live up to that original thing. Like you could say, well, okay, well, did The Godfather transcend the need for a sequel? Well, okay, they lived up to it there. And Alien and Terminator and various other instances. But jaws jurassic park the exorcist some of these iconic films where they turn into i don't know a freak show of trying to get your money get you in the door but there's not really anything substantial behind it at a certain point yeah it's going back to the well 
you know, after that last one, I would have thought, I, I can't believe that there's something that they can do to get people back interested. But then they're like, well, let's march out these original three. Characters. I would say that this would be the end, but it's not going to be. We know that. Sure. It may be the end of the Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard legacy characters version because we might have to wait like 10 years now rather than two or three because this one was a disaster. Sure. But it won't be the end. Of course, there'll be more eventually. Yeah. It's just the way it is. It's too valuable in their minds. They'll come up with a way to reinvent the wheel. They have to wait a long enough time for people to miss it and then yeah. hit, hit It'll you be with like... that da, na, na, <laughs> yeah, da, yeah. in the trailer and you're the like, park is reopened. I'm in. <laughs> Or they'll just straight up remake it. They'll well, act yeah, like it never happened the first that, time. Well, that or, kind of thing. or they make a sequel to just the original. Yeah. All the other ones didn't happen. <laughs> the sequel, the remake, yeah. the reboot, the requel, <laughs> whatever they call it. Yeah. Just a million different things. Right. Folks, yes. So you can check out American Gigolo on Showtime. And if you somehow listen to that and still feel like you want to watch Jurassic Park Dominion. It is on Peacock for free. Me. Which is the only way I wanted to watch it. I was going to text you and say, why don't you watch this so we can talk about it? But it is over two hours comfortably. It's like two hours and 40 minutes or something. Yeah, extended version. I wasn't going to subject you to that torture. I know I will watch it, but it's probably going to be a tough watch. I had to watch it in two. I had to cut it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I couldn't sit there for two hours and 40 minutes with this garbage. The whole thing with the cloned girl, which ultimately feels like it never really goes anywhere. I might be missing stuff because I probably zoned out at various points, but it felt like, what is the point of this? I don't even know if there's... I honestly couldn't even tell you how the movie ended right now. (laughs) I have no recollection of how it even ended. (laughs) All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already tracked down Paris, Texas, I don't know off the top of my head if it's streaming anywhere. If it's not on Criterion Channel, it feels like a movie that would probably pop up for free somewhere, like on Pluto TV or yeah, I don't know somewhere. I don't know. But if you haven't seen it, check it out. You can find us on Twitter at GreatestPod, and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podbean. You know, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Spread the word. Tell some friends. Be like, hey, I found this great podcast where they talk about Paris, Texas. You know that movie, right? (laughs) Right. Don't tell your uh, Jurassic Park Dominion fans to listen to it. (laughs) Yeah, we rarely trash things. That's true. Fully. (laughs) Because it's not really the vibe no. we like to put out yeah, that's yeah. not our thing but we're positive energy <laughs> sometimes things will come along that just infuriate me so uh-huh. much and this is something that i couldn't hold back it has to be said jurassic park should have been treated like a sacred text and it's just been bastardized <laughs> so many times now if you'd like a free sticker <laughs> reach out to us on <laughs> yeah. twitter at greatest pod and you can find us on letterboxd and read my one and a half star review of Jurassic Park Dominion. And I'll give you a little hint, a little inside knowledge. The only reason I gave it one and a half stars and not one star is because when I give something one star, it looks weird to me. Like it doesn't look like a review. It looks like I almost like you put a heart there or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
I don't know. One star just sticks out. I wanted it to be known how bad this movie okay. was, so I, I threw that half on there so you Fair know enough. it's like a shitty review. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't feel like it was quite at what I consider the half star level, which is like the real. Yeah, like uh, unwatchable. Yeah, movies that are not even professional. Right, right. <laughs> anyway, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. We got one more episode left before we're kicking off Greatest October. So buckle up. Matt used to mention it all year round, the countdown. Now he never It would annoy it. you, I thought, though. I'm trying to get better at not annoying you. <laughs> Do you still consider it our big time of the year? I think so, yeah. <laughs> all right, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Last night, I had a dream that we went to Disneyland. Winner and all the rides didn't have to wait in line. I took you to your house where we stand up at the stars. I listened to your heartbeat as I held you in my arms. We hung out at the rainbow where we drank to that tattoo. Nothing could go wrong when it's time in love with you. The Christina hotel room and leaning after that first kiss. A searching for a high school that you know doesn't exist. These are the Technology, but not as much as you, you see. 
But I still love technology Always and forever Our love is like a flock of doves Flying up to heaven above Always and forever Always and forever Yes, our love is truly great Always and forever Why do you need 